discovered that if you crushed grain into a powdery substance, add a little liquid and maybe a rising agent, quick question, has anyone here uh, mixed up baking powder for baking soda in a recipe? Okay, a couple here. I'll, I know that baking soda is the one you add vinegar to and it turns into a volcano, so, okay. But anyway, when you mix uh, wet and dry ingredients and throw the resulting substance we call dough onto a hot surface, and it turns into a, ver a versatile, chewy substance that is not only delicious, but a central part of our balanced diet. Almost every culture in the world has some type of bread, whether it's Mediterranean pita, Indian naan, uh, Mesoamerica tortilla, wonder bread that you buy at Walmart, there are hundreds if not thousands of types of bread. White bread, wheat bread, whole grain bread, seventh grade bread, multi-grain bread, rye, pumpernickel, the list goes on and on. But over time, bread has gotten a bad reputation. Uh, when you diet, what is one of the first things you are told to cut out? Bread. And not because it's inherently unhealthy, but because of the way our body processes it. Every diet out there, whether it's the keto or the Mediterranean or whatever the new diet is, it'll tell you to cut out carbs. And bread is the number one offender in this area. The concern over bread consumption is so prevalent that in weight loss schemes that a few years ago, Weight Watchers had the commercials trying to get you to join their program where they paid Oprah to tell everyone uh, how much she loves bread and how on the program uh, she doesn't have to deprive herself. You know, if Oprah plugs it, it must be good, right? But outside of carbs, the other big negative about bread is that it's full of this substance called gluten. You know, honestly, it was until really the last few years that uh, I didn't even know gluten was existed. And I, I think it's still a conspiracy. It's probably come out of a Chinese lab somewhere or something like that. But seriously, if you don't know what gluten is, it's a natural protein found in wheat, barley, and other grains. Uh, and gluten forms when water is added to flour and then during the mixing process, a continuous network of proteins form, uh, giving the dough its strength and elasticity. By holding gas produced during fermentation, the protein network allows the bread to rise. But some appear to have an intolerance to gluten. Uh, there's a serious condition called celiac disease, which uh, has a serious allergy, allergic reaction to wheat. But other non-celiac individuals are finding that removing gluten from their diet has great health benefits, and most of which are related to the digestive tract. The problem is that gluten is in everything, not just bread. According to glutenfreesociety.org, to go truly gluten-free, I should, lick, should not lick stamps, use toothpaste, shampoo, or eat Play-Doh, which is really fine with me because I don't use a lot of shampoo anyway. Uh, and when was the last time you actually licked the stamp? I don't know. That's a long time ago. But my point is not trying to dismiss anyone's opinions about carbs, gluten, or bread in general. I'm not trying to make light of any real or serious health conditions. But my point is that it seems that today, for multiple reasons, more and more people have a hard time digesting bread. This morning I want to suggest that Jesus, although possibly low carb, uh, might not be gluten-free. 
I don't know if it's because the Jesus we buy at the store is full of additives and stripped of his nutritional value, or it might be because over time I have developed a spiritually hardened digestive tract. Either way, I don't know about you, but sometimes Jesus can give me a little gas. But he tells me in John 6, 48, I am the bread of life, and no matter how I make you feel, you need me in your diet. Now to unpack Jesus' statement, I am the bread of life, we need to examine John chapter 6 as a whole, where bread has a central focus. Uh, mentioned some 20 times in the text. I'm going to walk through a good portion of the chapter, so feel free to open your Bibles, open up your Bible apps, or I think uh, I'm going to have a number of uh, the scriptures on the screen here. In John 6, we find the story of a miracle of Jesus feeding the multitude. Now, if you grew up in the church, you might remember that this is the story of the boy uh, with the five loaves and the two fishes which Jesus uh, multiplies into food for thousands uh, and even has leftovers. Interestingly, this is the only story of Jesus' miracles recorded in all four Gospels. So there must be something special here going on. In his Gospel, John places the story of the feeding of the 5,000 at the heels of a serious, significant signs. Now that's an important word uh, for John. Uh, first, Jesus turns water into wine. Then there are a couple of healings in chapters 4 and 5, which sets the stage uh, for the opening of chapter 6. In John 6, 2, it says, And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Now, I want to highlight how the narrative progresses, namely through the discussion about bread between Jesus and the people. I think the text progresses, uh, I think as the text progresses, there's a growing exasperation in Jesus' comments as the people don't seem to get his point. The chronology of John is not always easy to decipher. Chapter 6 starts on a mountain and the end of a synagogue, uh, ends in a synagogue without any real narrative shift. In verse 4, John tells us that the Passover was at hand. Now, it had just been a, a different feast mentioned in chapter 5. The importance of um, Passover uh, is probably thematic. You see, Passover had a strong association with bread, unleavened bread to be exact, uh, but also with two key points that John is drawing attention to, the giving of the bread in the wilderness and its association with Moses, and Jesus' teaching on the significance of his flesh and blood. And we will come back to that uh, later. Now, moving into chapter 6, starting in verse 5 of chapter 6, we read about the sign that the people saw. It says in verse 5, Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming towards him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that the people may eat? Now, Jesus really, don't take offense, but he's kind of being a jerk here because he knows the answer to this question. And Mark's verse tells us that he was trying to test Philip with his question. Jesus knows what he is going to do and who the real bread is. So to kind of make a long story short, Philip said, is take a small fortune to feed this crowd. And Peter finds a boy who brought his lunch, and Jesus turns it little into thousands with 12 baskets of leftovers. In verse 14, it says, When the people saw the sign that he had done, 
they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. The people were looking for a sign to fulfill the promise that a prophet like Moses would come, back in Deuteronomy 18. They were looking for someone who would mediate between them and God, someone who speaks for God like Moses did. Maybe someone who wages war for God as Moses did. Who will, with an outstretched arm and a mighty power, would once again free them from their oppressors. Like Pharaoh before, now Caesar. But you see, even though they say they are looking for a sign, on the next day, after Jesus hides in the hills, then walks on water, when they find Jesus, he reveals what is truly in their hearts. We skip down to verse 26. It says, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. See, Jesus knew that the people didn't want to believe as much as they wanted to be satisfied in some way, in some physical sense. They wanted their bellies full, their bodies healed, their power restored. But Jesus, although he offers most of those things, says, if this is all you want, you will never be satisfied. If this is all you expect out of me, then you may not really believe who I say I am. Now, a key point here, I think it's easy to approach Jesus in this way. We often approach him in a contractual relationship, I think. If you do this, I will do this. If I see you working, if I believe, well, maybe, kind of, sort of. You see, Jesus uh, calls out this contractual mindset. In verse 27, he says, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. To which they responded, What must we do to be doing the good works of God? Jesus, tell me what I need to do to get my belly full, and I will gladly comply. Verse 29, Jesus answered, This is the work of God, that you may believe in him who, has, who he has sent. You see, it's not about doing, it's about belief. We are not saved by works, but by faith. Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. However, I think it is interesting here that in some way Jesus equates belief and work. Now again, I'm not trying to say salvation is dependent on various levels of belief, but at least in my life, Belief has not always been easy. It is something that I have to work on. When things don't go my way, when my belly isn't full, when the pain of this flesh overwhelms me, when I don't feel Jesus like I used to, I don't know about you, but I struggle to believe. I often find myself like the exasperated father we see in Mark chapter 9, with a son who since childhood experienced some form of spiritual oppression, causing the boy to engage in self-injurious behavior. I often cry to Jesus' healing touch by saying, I believe, but help me with my unbelief. You know, but this world makes it so much harder to believe then, because they ridicule and mock those of us who believe. Even though each scientific discovery of the nature of the universe only unlocks greater mystery of its design, belief is for the uneducated in the sheltered mind. 
Even though our culture is so self-absorbed and devoid of moral compass and our very social fabric seems to be ripping and it seems belief is culturally irrelevant and sexually repressive. You see, sometimes belief is not easy to swallow. You see, belief is not just getting your bellies full. It is feasting on Jesus, flesh, blood, and all. And Jesus is not easy to digest. Jesus is not gluten-free. Now, looking back at John 6, how do the people respond to Jesus' emphasis on belief? They still don't seem to get it. In verse 30, it says, So they said to him, to Jesus, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe? What work do you perform? Now, at the beginning of the chapter, John told us that the people were following Jesus because of his signs. But I guess everything up to this point wasn't enough. I can just imagine Jesus at this point. Well, uh, I changed the molecular structure of water. I brought a kid back from the dead. I healed a guy who hadn't walked in 40 years. Uh, and I fed an entire stadium out of some kid's little lunchable. And you ask me for a sign. Next, the people try to prove their belief based on Bible knowledge. And they bring up the story of Moses and the manna. Remember, they were looking for a prophet, a prophet like Moses. Verse 31, it says, Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Now, to remind you of the story quickly, after the miraculous freedom from oppression in Egypt, Israel sent an entire generation wandering around in the desert because they were not 100% grateful what God had done. But God continues to extend grace and feed them while they walk around in the wilderness with little vegetation. They would wake up each morning and find an edible bread-like substance on the ground, which they called manna, which literally in Hebrew just means, what is that? that. Uh, the following dialogue between Jesus and the crowd compares Jesus, the bread of life, to Moses and the manna. And there are a few points I want to point out. First, our interpretation of the past does not define the present. In verse 32, it said, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but my Father is giving you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. There appears to be some confusion over who provided the manna. Who is the he in their comment in verse 32, which is likely uh, Psalm uh, 78, where it says, he gave them the bread to eat. Jesus pointed out that the Father provided the bread and not Moses. It wasn't a miracle brought about by human hands. They were asking to Jesus to recreate a past event. You see, even though they were watching for signs, they were looking for God to recreate what they knew or at least what they thought they knew. However, Jesus never fulfills our expectations of him. He will always challenge our preconceived notions of how the Father reveals himself. We cannot rely on the faith of our ancestors to carry us to Jesus. We must make the journey ourselves. You know, are we looking to get our bellies full, like our ancestors, or are we truly looking for Jesus without ulterior motives? A second point is that in many ways Jesus is like the manna because he too was sent from the Father to feed his people. 
In verse 38, it says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. For this is the will of the Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. See, in many ways, the experience of the manna was symbolic of Christ's coming. As an act of divine love and grace, the Father gave Israel, a rebellious and ungrateful people, sustenance. He sent them a Savior. He released them from their oppression. Now, once again, the Father, in an act of divine love and grace, has sent his children, a rebellious and ungrateful as we are, something to eat. But this bread will not merely fill our bellies. Which takes me to the next point. That unlike the manna, the events of the wilderness were temporary. But Jesus is eternal. Jesus feeds us beyond our earthly existence. In verse 48, he says, I am the bread of life. We got to our text. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, that so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. You see, the manna was temporary. It only lasted for the day. Any time longer, it would rot. The event itself was temporary. Only a generation in the wilderness experienced it. The people themselves were temporary. Has anyone here tasted manna? No, because everyone who did died. But Jesus says, I am not temporary. I am eternal. I will not rot. I will not cease to be. Are you hungry? looking for something to get you beyond the moment to make life worth living, here I am. The best part is if you eat me, if you consume me, if you feast on me, you will experience life far beyond what your frail bodies can offer. Yes, this flesh needs nourishment, but I want to fill those temporary vessels up with something they were never meant to hold. You see, the only thing I want you to hear this morning is that Jesus is what sustains us. Not just physically, but nourishing that deep inner part that is hard to qualify that we call our soul. Our person that longs to be more than bones and skin, longs to be more than our jobs, our communities, our families. That part of us that hungers, that thirsts, longs for something, something that actually tastes good. I think this broken world is so hungry for something that sustains. There's a couple ways that Jesus satisfies this craving. One is that the bread of life is the source of divine revelation. The people were looking for a sign from Moses, a new mediator, someone who relayed the words of God. Jesus is far superior to Moses. He not only speaks for the Father, he is the Word. The embodiment of divine revelation that is beyond human speech. As the writer to the Hebrews says, Long ago, many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom, 
whom he also created the world. If we want to be fed, we need to feast on the word of God. Jesus knew this. Before he began his public ministry, he went into the desert to withdraw from the world so that the world would not be a snare to him. In Matthew 4, it says, And after feasting 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. If you only want to get your belly full, go out and get some rocks to eat. If you want to feed your soul, go and consume God's word. The second point is that bread is the bread of life is the sustenance of the church. Verse 53, it says, So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you will have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now at the beginning of the message, I I noted how John places chapter 6 within the context of the Passover feast. In the early church, Passover, this Jewish celebration of what God did for Israel, took a new meaning because you see, before God sent the manna, he sent the lamb. Before the people were fed in the wilderness, they were saved by the blood. Jesus forever changed the perspective of Passover when during a celebration he stood up, looked around the table and said, let me tell you something about the blood of salvation. And ever since, the church has celebrated around a table, not as individuals, but as a living body, feasting in communion on the sacrifice of Christ Jesus. And this is the sustenance of the church. I want to try to bring this home once again by suggesting that Jesus is not gluten-free. He is hard to digest. And we see this in the text. In verse 60, it said, When many of disciples heard this teaching, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus said to them, Do you take offense at this? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. You see, to eat and to drink Jesus, it's it's not about cannibalism. It's not about a little cup and a little cracker. It's about sharing in his suffering. It's about dying to self as he did, about submitting to the will of the Father as he did, embracing the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, which he sends as a helper and advocate. Sharing in communion is an act of taking up the cross of Christ. And that's why Jesus is so hard to digest. Living for something other than self-gratification gives a person real indigestion. The text says, After this teaching, many of the disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? And next, this is one of my life verses. Uh, In John 6, 68, it says, Simon Peter answered to him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Other than Jesus, there is no answer. Nothing will satisfy you. There is nowhere else to go. 
I've come to a place in my life where I recognize that if I don't have Jesus as the central focus, if I don't do the hard work of sorting out belief with fear and trembling, I'm not sure life is worth living. Without Jesus, the world is nothing than Facebook posts and reality TV. Vanity of vanities, chasing after the wind. I wager that at least one person here this morning is at the end of their rope. You have tasted everything this world has offered and are not satisfied. You spend your days hungry and thirsty, rummaging through the garbage of this world looking for scraps. If none of this makes sense to you, ask someone about this bread that we talk about. After the service, find you know, one of the elders, one of the members of the ministry staff, or lean over to the person next to you. You know, I hope someone this morning looks healthy and well-fed. In a moment, uh, the piano is going to play, and the ushers will guide you to the tables. And when your time comes, let these words of the prophet Isaiah be on your heart. In Isaiah 55, the prophet says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money on that which is not bread and labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me. Eat what is good and delight in the food, the richness of the food you found. Pray with me. Father God, be in our hearts, be in our minds, and lead our earthly bodies towards you always. Jesus, we thank you for dying to yourself to be that which feeds and sustains us. And Holy Spirit, be our guide to the table. Grant us rest and peace in Jesus and help us love each other well. Amen.